joined by John Curtis from the University of Strathclyde, uh, Rob Ford, Professor of Political Science at the University of Manchester, our own Paula Surridge, Deputy Director of the UK to Changing Europe from Bristol University, and finally James Forsyth, the political editor of The Spectator. As always, you can stick your questions on Slido. As always, if you could vote for the questions you want me to ask, that would make my life easier, even though I reserve the right to ignore some questions if I want to. But if you can put your questions down and vote for them, please, then I'll know which questions you want to hear answers to. And I want to start off very, very broadly, if I may, with the four of you, which is basically just to ask you what you think uh, from these elections are the key takeaways. And if we can start with the local elections, Rob, and I can go to you first, what would you say were the key takeaways of these elections? Uh, well, I mean, a massive wave of local elections, so lots we can get into. Um, but the big question I had in my mind going into this wave of local elections was whether or not the once in a century pandemic that we've all been living through had, as it were, wiped the slate clean politically uh, in terms of the previous uh, event that was defining our politics, which was Brexit. And the very emphatic answer, I think, from this wave of local elections is that it has not had uh, that effect. Um, voters' behaviour, and in particular the change in voting behaviour uh, from uh, the last set of local elections through to this set of local elections, is very strongly correlated with the way people voted in 2016. Uh, and the second lesson, which is related to that, is the kinds of performance that the Labour opposition would be wanting to see in a local election wave if they want to be making the case that they are a viable party on the route on the track into government this this was a big disappointment for them in that regard uh, they simply didn't make in, enough ground up in part they were handicapped because some of these local elections were last fought before brexit and so there was always going to be a certain degree of um, shake-up baked into the whole thing by that but even when looking at the seats that were last fought in 2017, which is a very low baseline for Labour because it was just at the start of the 2017 general election uh, and uh, Jeremy Corbyn was well behind Theresa May at that point, Keir Starmer hasn't advanced very far on that baseline, which is a major concern for the party, uh, given that electability is one of the main things that Starmer is meant uh, to offer. Well, you've given me a fantastic segue there, Rob. Rob doesn't know I'm going to do this, but if you want to understand what's happening <laughs> in British politics at the moment and the long-term realignment, buy this book because it's fantastic. So there we go. Uh, by Rob and Maria Sobolewska. It's called Brexit Land and there's a paperback. Uh, I can't remember who I said next. Paul, was it you, Sir John? Yes, it was. Okay. Um, okay, Scotland. Um the principal issue up here is not so much Brexit, but the constitutional question, although Brexit itself during the course of the last four years has reshaped the character and uh, level of support uh, for independence. But what the election itself uh, confirmed, I think, was two related things. First, is that Scotland is indeed, as the polls have been suggesting, pretty evenly divided on the question of its constitutional status between those who want to remain inside the UK and those who wish to be uh, the country to become independent, and also is now deeply polarised on that question. Let me just unpack a little bit of the evidence behind those two claims. Um, 
the uh, final polls indicated that around 88% of those people who are current supporters of independence were going to vote for the SNP on the constituency vote. Um, and only 8% of those who said uh, that they would vote no. So there is now, I mean, support for the SNP and support for independence are now virtually synonymous with each other. That is a new phenomenon. Even back in 2016, around one in five of those people at that time who were opposed to independence were voting for the SNP. And indeed, quite strikingly, the relationship between people's current attitudes towards independence and which party they voted for is, was stronger in this election than was the relationship between people's current attitude towards Brexit and who they voted for in the 2019 UK general election. So this the constitutional question did very, very much dominate the way in which people voted. That was reflected in particular on the unionist side in a uh, very clear evidence, which has now been confirmed by polling data published yesterday, of those on the unionist side of the argument being willing to vote for whichever party was best able to stop the SNP from picking up a number of marginal opposition held seats, a development that was crucial in ensuring that the SNP did not get the 65 seats that they wanted, and therefore um, an overall majority. The polarization and the intensity of the deba uh, debate um, uh, therefore is very clear. Um, and the intensity then is also confirmed by the fact that turnout rose to 63%, which is by far and away a record high. As people an existential question, you start to get an existential um, answer. Um, and then, so given that's the case, what then is absolutely intriguing, which has meant that neither side has really been able to claim a clear victory in this election. If you add up all of the votes cast for the parties uh, in the constituency election, 50.4% were cast for parties that were in favour of staying in the union. And uh, on the list vote, 50.1% of the vote was cast for parties that are in favour of independence. So in other words, the two vote, which party people voted for, and their views on the independence are virtually synonymous with each other. Therefore, I think, you know, we can reasonably use it, the outcome of election as an indicator as to whether or not what the polls have been telling us about the level of support for independence. And it frankly confirms that we are in a situation where half of Scotland, roughly speaking, wants to be independent and half wishes to stay inside the UK. So uh, the country is divided down the middle and it's also deeply polarized on this subject. Um, and it does therefore present politicians of all hues, whatever their constitutional preference, with quite a considerable challenge as to how in the end you are going to resolve what ultimately is one of the most difficult issues to resolve in politics, which is an issue of legitimacy. Just out of interest, and you, I mean, you're coming next, Paul, as so you can answer it if you want. Are there any interesting turnout patterns from the local elections? I mean, was how, what, how high was turnout? Was it higher in leave than remain areas or is there anything? The big surprise of turnout in the locals was how little uh, it seems to have been affected by the COVID disruptions. Uh, it was really flat uh, compared to previous waves of local elections and basically the places you would expect higher turnout had higher turnout at this time and vice versa. Really very little story there. Okay, Paula, you want to talk about Wales and Hartlepool? Yes, I'll talk about Wales and Hartlepool. So the, the Hartlepool result kind of 
sent sent the Labour Party into a tailspin on Friday morning. And had they waited till kind of Saturday afternoon, they would have had the Wales story to add to that, which is it's, which is rather different. So there's kind of two ends to this story. I think for the for the Hartlepool result, at one level, it doesn't give us any really new information. Had the Brexit party not stood in 2019, it's the kind of result we would have expected to see in that constituency in the 2019 election. Um, and I've said that a lot, and I think that's a really good description of what happened. I think if we want to have an explanation of what happened, though, then we need to look further back and we need to understand why there was that high Brexit party vote in 2019 and why those voters had moved away from Labour over that longer period. Um, I'm, I dare say there'll be questions about that popping up on the Slido later. In Wales, there's kind of two questions to look at. One is the um, incumbency effect. And so if we're going to talk about vaccine bounces for um, Johnson in the local elections and the mayor elections and so on, then we might expect to see a similar thing in Wales. And in fact, we do. We do see that um, the, well, the, the Welsh Labour government being given a certain amount of credit for the vaccine rollout, the handling of the pandemic, high personal ratings for Mark Drakeford and high recognition um, as well. Very few don't knows now when you, when you ask about Mark Drakeford compared to before. But the other issue in Wales was that there was a relatively high, I use relatively there, UKIP vote still to work its way through from 2016. There were seven seats in the Senate to work their way through as that vote collapsed. And although the Conservatives did make some progress there, their vote went up more where there was a higher UKIP vote. Labour also managed to hold on, and Labour, Welsh Labour managed to hold on in leave areas in a way that um, UK Labour in England were not able to do. And that's something that needs a lot more forethought over the coming weeks, but seems to be connected to the way in which Welsh Labour are able to connect to Welshness and are able to present themselves as a party of Wales in a way that, um, John will have a lot more to say on this, I'm sure, but in a way that, that Scottish Labour have, have kind of drifted away from over the last two or three decades, um, but Welsh Labour seem to have managed to keep that connection. Thank you. And James, sort of taking a big overview, what, what strikes you most about these elections? What should we be really thinking about? So one of the big questions was, was 2019 a kind of freak result driven by the public being fed up with the Brexit stalemate in Parliament and, and the kind of Jeremy Corbyn factor? I think what these results show is that that's clearly not right. The kind of realignment that Rob was talking about is still obviously continuing. Uh, I think it's also important to note these are kind of the first kind of post-COVID electoral test and suggests that certainly in England, Boris Johnson hasn't... Uh, been hurt politically by COVID. And I think if you look back at some of those moments when support for governments handling the pandemic fell down to kind of the 30% level, that, that wasn't a given. I think it's quite telling now that you're back up at a kind of level of public, uh, of public support for governments handling of, of COVID, which is about akin to a kind of a month into the first national lockdown. Now that obviously might change if the uh, uh, so-called Indian variant slows down the unlocking. But at the moment, I think you don't see uh, any um, COVID damage there. I, I think it's also true to pick up on something that Paula said, that I think you saw incumbents in England, Scotland and Wales all benefiting from a vaccine bounce. I think there's no, I don't think it's a coincidence, but the governing parties in all three places had, uh, had good evenings and, and did well. Um, I think that there... I think if you talk to uh, Tories about the result, I think the one thing that you pick up on 
is a concern about some of those results in the South, you know, losing control of Cambridgeshire, the leader of the Oxfordshire County Council losing his seat, the majority in Surrey being slashed. Uh, now, I think you can say on the one hand, that's just usual local election churn. But I think I think it, it has put rocket boosters under the argument in the Tory party about planning reform, because lots of people representing those places argue that, you know, worries about future developments there were behind that. So I think that, that's going to make the Tory debate over planning reform in the autumn uh, more fraught. Uh, and then I think there are two kind of other interesting questions here, which is one, you know, how durable is this Tory coalition? I think we haven't yet, I think one of the big interesting things is we're going to see the fastest economic growth in living memory this year as you get this bounce back from uh, the kind of the, the massive contraction we saw last year. How much does that help to glue together this new Tory coalition? And, and then I think the other question to, to, to touch on something that John spoke to, which is you know, how much does Scotland end up dominating the rest of this parliament? Let me, if I may, just flip that on its head. Uh, you know, imagine a world where we enter the autumn and unemployment spikes with the end of furlough. Uh, I mean, one of the interesting things that I'm not going to keep going on about this book, but that Rob and Maria talk about in their book is the fact that when we get this identity divide opening up for the first time, it kind of gets muscled out by the economic crisis of the 1970s. So there we go. Excellent. Uh, so, so, so left, right keeps going as it was. Oh, my God, everyone's got one on their desk. Uh, it, it, this is, I suppose, a question about how persistent the new Brexit divide proves to be. In the event that we end up in the autumn talking about unemployment and economic policy, do we think that this sort of phase ends up being a bit more transient than perhaps we think now, that actually politics as it was before reasserts itself? Or is that an impossible question? to really think about. That's the bet the Labour Party have been taking so far. Labour is desperate for politics to get back to the politics of left versus right. And their strategy has been to keep Sturm on Brexit and hope that uh, left-right politics uh, 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 kicks back in. Of course, the difficulty is, I mean, and you know, the answer to the question, Alan, is, isn't just simply driven by events. It may be partly be driven by events. It's also driven by politicians. The Conservative Party will not leave go of the identity and cultural issues. You see it still being played in all sorts of other ways, because at the end of the day, this is a government that primarily uh, is going to be trying to make two cases in 2023 or 2024. One is we've handled the pandemic well, and two, Brexit has brought dividends, and therefore they will continue to want to make Brexit an issue. Mm -hmm. And it's a, it's a, it will partly be a battle of agendas between uh, the opposition and the government as to which of these on, on how these on, on what to persuade people to focus and but sure um i mean the, i mean the other the other problem that party faces in trying to go back to left right agenda i mean it's just worth bearing in mind this is not a traditional conservative government i mean i would argue that the accession of boris johnson to prime minister marked the end of the neoliberal experiment inside the uk um that he he you know leaving aside the pandemic he is an interventionist in some ways um, and to that extent, at least, it was going to be more difficult for the Labour Party to um, attack the government on the grounds of austerity, et cetera, et cetera, than um, was previously the case. So arguably also, we've got a government which is much more willing to close down the left-right divide vis-a-vis -vis the opposition mm. and wanting to exploit the Brexit one. So uh, that's uh, Labour's it, it will depend on the politics. It won't just depend on the events. 
I mean, in his early days, but it was interesting to note that Rachel Reeves seems a bit less reluctant than her predecessor to talk about Brexit. And um, indeed, yeah, particularly so, given that Rachel Reeves previously seemed to be quite closely associated with the Keep Storm about Brexit strategy. Yeah. James, you were, I think, going to come in on this. You were slightly beaten to it by John. No, I mean, I, I think one of the difficulties for Labour is normally after a party had been in office for as long as the Tories have been, you know, time for a change is, is a very potent charge against them. I think the problem is the Tories keep reinventing themselves in office. You know, if you think back uh, in 2010, the Tory party was pro-austerity. It's now pro-big spending. It's just paid the wages of 11 million workers uh, to prevent unemployment. Uh, uh, it was um, trying to make the NHS a kind of semi-independent body. It's now bringing back kind of top-down health secretary control. And, you know, its foreign policy was to be China's best friend in the West. It's now trying to midwife uh, a, a democratic alliance to contain China. I think that I think one of the, the challenges for Labour is that, that they, they want to kind of take on the kind of Cameron Osborne Tory party, but, it, but it's not there anymore. Now, Paula, I know you were writing about values before anyone else realised that it was a thing. Uh, so you've seen, you know, as with Robin Maria, that this has been a long run thing. Do you see a prospect for a sort of realignment back in the near future? Do you think it's a bet that Labour's sort of sensible to make? So I don't see a, a realignment back. And I think trying to set these two things as if they are oppositional is a problem mm -hmm. because actually within the electorate, what we get are some groups that are defined by positions on both of these things. They have things that they think of as being good economic outcomes, they have things that they think of as being good cultural outcomes, and they produce these individual, these distinctive groups within the electorate. So even if um, the economics becomes really important in the autumn, and we see more of that in the political debate, that won't see a swing all the way back to it being all about the left-right divide. I think it's always now going to be about how those how those two things cross cut and how they interact with each other. So I think this kind of searching for one or the other as a, as a totem to go with is, is just not, not helpful because it's missing the fact that these things come together in different ways. But can I also intervene in here, Adam, because I think there is potentially a great danger of confusing arguments that explain structure with arguments that explain the flux. Um, I mean, some of the work that's now reflected all this stuff in values was, you know, originally done back in, uh, in How Britain Votes back in the 1980s. And one of the crucial messages that we had in that book was that, yes, you can look, you can see there's a very clear structure to the pattern of party, party support with respect to, the, to voters' values. But actually, the changes in levels of party support often occur across the board. So in other words, um, there are really two things, you've really got to think through two things. So why was the pattern of support for, or you know, relative performance by Conservative and Labour related to Brexit? Well, that's the new structure, the structure of the 2019 election now imposing itself on the local elections. That, however, does not necessarily explain why Labour, on our estimate, was seven points behind nationally, mm -hmm. right? And that is potentially to do with, 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 with COVID and that, you know, changes in party support can go, up, uh, can go up and down across the board. Indeed, that's been Labour's experience. So even when Labour were at 40% in the polls back in October, the gap in its support between Remain and Leave voters was exactly the same as it had been back in the general election, right? So support goes, 
sport goes up or down. So we need to be aware that, yes, we can, we can say we now have a different structure to our politics, but at the end of the day, it might be possible for the Labour Party to win the next election simply because at the end of the day, lots of people, irrespective of whether they voted Remain or Leave or whether they are left or on the right, decide that Boris Johnson is a buffoon and the government's completely fouled up. And therefore, as a result, so long as Labour managed to exploit that, will do well. And they may just rise like a boat across the whole board, even though we've still got exactly the same structure. So, you know, if one wants to, if, I think, you know, to be honest, if one wants to explain the structure of the local elections, um, then frankly, it's Brexit, and nobody should have been surprised. The polls have been telling us for months that there had been absolutely no change in the structure of support since 2019. If you want to understand the level, however, then certainly in England, almost undoubtedly, you're, you're looking at the pandemic and people's reaction to the pandemic. Although I should say, James, I don't think that works in Scotland for reasons I'm happy to explain, but the pandemic, the, the effects of the pandemic in Scotland were evident in the uh, autumn of last year, but they seem to have worked themselves out by this stage. You're going to have to take it on trust that there is a copy of Heath, Jowl and Curtis somewhere in this room, but not to hand, I'm afraid, so I can't wave it around, I'm afraid, John. Sorry about that. But Rob, seeing as everyone else has had a go on this. Uh... Um, yeah, I, mean, I wanted to follow up on a point John was just making um, regarding structure. Um, uh, and there's also another point I'd like to make that follows from that regarding the Labour Party. So I, I agree with John completely that it's very important to separate out structuring elements from, you know, flux elements and you know there's, there's there is clearly a vaccine honeymoon going on here the problem is for the Labour Party uh, under Keir Starmer is even if he rides out this honeymoon and gets through what's likely to be quite an awkward conference in the autumn and the honeymoon fades the structure the new structure of the vote is highly disadvantageous to the Labour Party because of the way that Remain and Leave voters distribute themselves across constituencies. So if Labour continue to do really well with Remain voters relative to Leave voters, then that means they stack up lots of votes in places that they already won in 2019. What they need to do is to make some change to that structure in order to be competitive in more of the places that they didn't win uh, in 2019, or they need a very big increase in the, the change element to the vote. And two problems stem from that. The first is that isn't necessarily uh, a strategy that will enthuse the most remain elements of their existing support and their existing activist base, which causes them headaches at conference, but also causes problems like the one we saw with the Green Party in this year's local election. So Green Party support was their second best ever local elections, the first best being 2019, and they did very well in largely the same kinds of places that Labour did very well, remain places with lots of graduates, suggesting that they are fishing in the same pond as Labour structurally. And that poses Labour a problem in terms of unifying the Remain vote. But it also poses them a problem in terms of their activists who have a voice in the strategy and policy of the Labour Party that's probably louder than it used to be, because those voters come overwhelmingly from the Remain side of this argument. And if they're not provided with element, uh, compelling evidence that a strategy that's focused more on renewing appeal and leave areas is actually going to deliver results electorally, they'll say, well, this isn't the kind of Labour Party that we want anyway. And if it's not working electorally, can't we have the kind of Labour Party that we do want? We'd rather lose with policies we like than lose with policies we don't. <laughs> 
I'm sort of tempted to sort of ask the question about whether Labour faces the same fate as many continental uh, democratic <laughs> parties, but we're gonna, so let's segment that a bit. We've got a question from Ben Brindle asking, will the Greens usurp the Lib Dems as the third party in UK politics? But I suppose we can rephrase that as to what, let's just dig into this bit. To what extent are the Greens a threat to Labour, particularly in a very different circumstances of a general election? Do those people who voted Green at local simply vote Labour because of that two-party dynamic we've seen recently. Should the Labour Party be worried about the Green Party's performance? Well, just picking up more broadly on, on, on Rob's point, I mean, of course, the, 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 the other issue here, it's at the end of the day, it's not just, you know, we, we, we can um, talk about, you know, how adding Remain voters doesn't help Labour Party that much, but what is also true is the Remain vote is just simply so much more fragmented the Leave vote. At the end of the day, the Conservatives' big success was uniting the Leave vote all behind them, whereas the Remainers all remain very much divided. So it isn't just a question to do with geographical distribution. It's that La Labour isn't that successful amongst Remain voters as compared with the Conservatives amongst Leave voters it is also Labour's problem. And, Rob, and, and so therefore, in a sense, you know, as, as electoral commentators, we're kind of looking there and, and saying, well, you know, is Labour at risk at the end of the day of losing support to both sides of the spectrum? Is it, is it at risk of losing support to of Remain uh, voters to the, the Greens or the Liberal Democrats? And meanwhile, it doesn't do anything in terms of picking up uh, Leave voters back from the Conservatives. I mean, Labour's won salvation, I think, uh, in the last 12 months. Um, is, is that the Liberal Democrats have also not been willing to fight the Brexit battle. Um, I can just about understand Labour's explanation for, for not doing so. I frankly do not understand at all why the Liberal Democrats have given up on being the party that wants to get back into the European as quickly as possible. That's overwhelmingly where their electorate is. It's the only electorate they're going to pick up. Um, and uh, given the state of Labour's ambivalence on the subject, that gave them a, an ideal opportunity. It does therefore mean that the Greens potentially have an opportunity. Um, they certainly have always tended to pick up to some degree much the same kind of social liberal electorate that uh, Lord Democrats do, although their vote is not, certainly in the general election, was, was not as firmly embedded in the in Remain voters as the Lord Democrat one, which was virtually overwhelmingly pro-Remain. But yeah, I mean, they're clearly, uh, well, they've displaced Liberal Democrats north of the border, two elections in a row. Um, they're able to displace the Liberal Democrats in London-wide elections, though um, the Liberal Democrats still have their strength in southwest London in the borough elections. Um, they've not yet displaced Liberal Democrats in local government. I mean, Liberal Democrats won salvation as they do still have this extraordinary strength in local government, a strength which actually in many respects seems to be unrelated to the Brexit divide. They're still able to pick up people for, uh, for, for their pavement politics, local policy, et cetera. And at the end of the day, that does provide them with a body of activists and infrastructure and councillors, which at the moment, at least, the Greens are not able to emulate. And that kind of becomes important in the long run because, you know, uh, at, at the end of the day, long-term organisational strength matters. I mean, one of the, that's one of the lessons of the whole last, a few years. At the end of the day, creating parties like UKIP and Brexit was fine and they could succeed in the short run, but they didn't have the organisational strength to, 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 to achieve electoral continuity. Liberal Democrats can get bashed and battered and bruised 
but somehow or another they're still there because they've got a body of strength and organization and, and can therefore potentially recover. But yeah, Labour do have to worry, I think, eventually that um, uh, either the Greens or the Liberal Democrats will wake up and uh, go for the, the EVA, which of course is precisely what happened during the course of 2019. Anyone else on the Green sorry. Challenge? I just had two extra points um, to, to what John's been saying there. Firstly, the, the green vote, when we look at those that are, if we can put it, enthusiastic green supporters, tends to be a little bit more economically left-wing than the Lib Dem vote. So there is a difference between the two parties there in terms of who they're competing for. But also I think post-coalition in 2010, the Greens now have more of an opportunity to pick up the, the none of the above vote. So they're not necessarily enthusiastic Greens, but they don't like anybody else. And when we look at kind of party-like scores for the Greens, there's not anybody that really dislikes them. There are fewer people that really like them, but they, they, have that that, they have that space as well, which I think explains some of the results actually in the local elections, because they weren't all in kind of solidly... Um, Studenty areas. Brilliant, thank you. I mean, and how worried should Labour be? I mean, do Labour face the prospect of becoming like a sort of continental social democratic party and just being squeezed essentially out of serious concern? Well, I mean, you know, the, the, you know, one of the fascinating questions about British politics in the last five years, in comparison with much of um, what we used to call Western Europe is that we've had a very substantial electoral realignment, but it's an electoral realignment, realignment that so far has operated through the existing two-party system. But there were clearly stages during the course of 2019 when that looked to be in doubt, when both the Brexit Party and the Liberal Democrats were beginning to make a serious challenge, seemingly, to the hegemony of uh, Conservative and Labour. It is an experience that stands in contrast with mu much of a Western European country where we have seen new parties break through and old parties disappear. Um, and I guess there's an interesting question to be asked here about, well, why in the end uh, uh, did, did the divide and the realignment operate through existing party system? But certainly I think the experience elsewhere indicates that, you know, if this uh, you know, what we call labelling loosely the Brexit divide persists, um, there certainly is no guarantee that we will keep our existing party system. And of course, what certainly is true, Scotland certainly illustrates there is no guarantee that the British party system is bound to survive. I mean, we actually, in truth, we no longer have a British party system. We have an English and, English and almost Welsh party system, and we have a Scottish party system, and we have a Northern Irish party system. So, Scotland has certainly indicated how a cross-cutting issue, an issue that cuts across the left-right divide, can in the end seriously undermine what seems to be a seemingly well-established uh, party system. James or Rob, do you want to come in on this? I mean, we've asked the question, can Labour surprise survive before in our past? Yeah, I, I think one of the things that, that Keir Starmer got unlucky with is he put all his eggs in the competence basket. And uh, back in... Uh, September, even as recently as the, as the start of January, you know, the idea that oppositions don't win elections, governments lose them, appeared to have some support. You were showing, seeing polls that showed Labour ahead, um, and it appeared that kind of government mistakes in handling the pandemic were, were giving Labour a route back in despite everything. And I mean, the problem for him is these elections coincided with uh, the vaccine rollout, giving the government a kind of a, a competence case as well as a values case to make. 
I think the I think the, in terms of how worried Labour should be about the Greens is I think Labour have to just assume that you know if, if Labour worry about the Greens, I find it very hard to see what their route back is in some of the seats they lost to the Tories last time round. And as as, as Rob and John and Paula have all said, you know that this 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 vote is too concentrated and too narrow to deliver three hundred and twenty six seats in the UK House of Commons, especially when you consider the, the situation in Scotland. Do you want to add anything? Rob, you don't have to, but you're very um, welcome. Yeah, I think two points. Uh, the, the first is I think the, the, the 2019 is an interesting case study in, in, in two conflicting dynamics. One is illustrating how much weaker the attachments to the traditional two governing parties are when when the incentive structure that voters perceive changes. Uh, the shares that, vote, that both Labour and the Conservatives got in the 2019 European Parliament elections were all-time lows, and the polling in that period was crazy. Um, but secondly, the enduring strength of um, the first-past-the-post electoral system as a device to force people into two big buckets. Uh, and one of the big open questions is, is, you know, which of those two dynamics will prevail going forward? It's, it's very, very hard um, to know. But I think there's actually a middle way, a third way, perhaps, if you will, Anand, between uh, Labour recovering, Labour dying off in the manner of something like PASOK. I know that the, the Labour left are very fond of this term PASOKification these days. The middle way is that Labour is too weak to win, but too strong to die, uh, and that it ends up in a kind of equilibrium state of getting 200 to 250 seats, because it's always able to crunch the votes together under first past the post in sufficient seats to be the dominant representative of the centre-left, but is unable to broaden its appeal sufficiently to build a, a majority coalition again. And particularly yeah, right. because of what's happened in Scotland, that that looks a more, you know, that that also looks like a plausible path forward for, say, the next 10 years. That's crucial to make at this point is that Labour do not need to win a majority in the general election in order to get back into power. Because the other thing that we tend not to talk about is the fact that the Conservatives are uncoalitionable with. And if the once we reach a point where the Conservatives are, you know, significantly below 326, they will be out on their ear because there is no way, there is no way that neither the Liberal Democrats or the SNP are going to allow the Conservatives to run a minority administration uh, if they can throw them out, even if they are the larger party. So to that extent, at least, um, the contest is asymmetric. Um, yes, Labour, Labour winning an overall majority, very, very difficult given the situation in Scotland. Labour getting back into power an awful lot easier, albeit it, um, along the way, probably having to agree to a referendum in Scotland and perhaps indeed having to, to, to um, be uh, pursuing a much more uh, pro-EU friendly policy than the one the party might otherwise be minded to, to, to do, because it will be dependent on the minority parties. James, I hope you're going to use that line, too weak to win, too strong to die. As a yeah, no, it's a very column. good line. <laughs> Incidentally, just while I'm plugging academics, this book is explained to me electoral volatility better than any other. So if you're interested in disengagement and why it might be that the sort of current sort of strength of the two parties might not be something we should expect to persist, have a read of that. I mean, the, the, the other thing to say about the Labour Party at the moment, following on James' comments, it's just got to stop being so timid. It, it's, it, 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 it's not just that it keeps stum on Brexit. It just has, has seemingly had virtually nothing to say about anything. 
And if one were to parody the structure of many a Labour contribution to the day programme in the last 12 months, it has been, you know, Labour shadow spokesperson comes on and says, oh, the government's failing to do this, it's messing up on that. Question from uh, today presenter, so what would the Labour Party do? The government keeps on messing up and, and still failing to do what it should on this. It's not coming up with virtually anything in the way of alternative uh, proposals. And at the end of the day, the art of effective opposition is not just simply to point out the weaknesses in what the government is doing, but it's then to link that with a message about how you would do things better. And frankly, I don't think the Labour Party, you know, with one or two rare occasions um, about particularly uh, willing to call for uh, a national lockdown in, in, in England in October before the government eventually did so, um, the Labour Party has just not been willing to say anything about what its position would be. And that, to that extent, at least, therefore, it's been inviting people to vote, to vote for a vacuum. And inevitably, that's not very attractive. OK, uh, we've got a question here from Alex Forsyth, uh, which I'm going to put to all of you, which is how much significance should we give to the fact that the Tories lost some ground in some of their traditional heartlands? We talk about places like Oxfordshire or Surrey. There's an interesting piece about Surrey in, on Conservative Home this morning, interest, uh, actually. But, you know, the flip side of the coin is, is the realignment affecting the Tories too in some of their heartlands? Yeah, well, see, what, what, what particularly you're picking up there are places where the last election was in 2017, okay? Um, uh, and overall, the position in 2021 for uh, the Tories was not quite as strong as it was in 2017. You then put on top the fact that in Remain voting areas, there's a, that, that Labour, the Tories are doing less well than Leave voting areas, Actually, there was a swing since 2017 in to Labour in Remain voting areas, all right? Because uh, overall, the baseline in 2017 is very different from 2016. So the relatively weak Conservative performance in 2017 then gets reflected in the fact that the party is losing ground in Remain areas, and these happen to be uh, uh, you know, I mean, Surrey voted to remain, right? Much as Surrey voted to remain. So you're beginning to pick up remain voting, more remain voting. Areas. The 2017 elections were much more concentrated in the south of England than the ones that were last fought in 2016. So therefore, where Labour was going to pick up, was they're more likely to pick up in places that last contested in 2017, and particularly so in places that were voting remain. But it's not telling you anything new. It's not telling you anything about green shoots of, of, of Labour recovery. But of course, what is true is that the Conservatives have taken a hit amongst Remain voters. They therefore have taken a hit amongst Remain, uh, Remain voting areas. And while Batley and Spen may be well be an interesting by-election, as it was Hartlepool Mark II, though it looks easier to defend than Hartlepool, Chesham and Amersham will also be an absolutely fascinating by-election. This is exactly the kind of constituency in which the Liberal Democrats will need to be trying to demonstrate an ability to win over Remain voting Conservative voters. But yeah, the Conservatives will find it more difficult. I mean, I know, you can also see it elsewhere. I mean, I think at the moment, if you if you identify what on the uniform electorate is the 326th mo, mo, you know, seat that Labour could pick up. So what's the seat that takes them past 326? I think it's Bromley and Chislehurst, which the Labour Party hasn't won in a month of Sundays. 
All right. So sure, the, the electoral geography has shifted. And if the Labour Party were ever to significantly recover relative to the Tories, they, they will particularly be, find it easier, relatively speaking, to win ground in the minority of Tory seats that voted remain. Sure. Anyone else want to come in on this? Uh, yeah, if I can just add uh, to John's comments there. As, as a Surrey-born boy myself, uh, I spent my whole childhood in a constituency that was, you know, mainly marginal between the Conservatives and the Lib Dems. I do think the other element in this story that's worth emphasising is that Conservatives going backwards in kind of southern home counties areas is a story that I think will enthuse the Liberal Democrats in particular, because one legacy of the 2019 election is that the geography of the Liberal Democrat vote has changed in a way that, that basically puts them in a much stronger position to benefit from the Conservatives falling back in strongly remain areas of the south of England than has hitherto been the case. Surrey being a classic example of that, and there were like 15 point swings to the Liberal Democrats in parts mm. of Surrey. And one of the lessons from 2017 to 2019 is sometimes it takes, if you start with very big majorities locally in seats, it can take several cycles of swings against you before you become vulnerable. And perhaps what we see in some of these parts of South England is an early warning sign for the Conservatives that uh, longer run even if these seats are not necessarily straightforwardly in play today, they, many of them may, could move into the danger zone either against the Liberal Democrats or against Labour in the future. I mean, some of them are there already. Isha and Walton, for example, highly, highly marginal now for Dominic Raab. And, the, you know, I can't imagine he was happy to see those results coming in from Surrey. For a fantastic moment there, John, I thought you were going to say, if I can just disagree with John, uh, but you'll let me down. Uh, <laughs> James. I think one question, as Rob said, the Tories are undoubtedly going to be more vulnerable where there is a clear challenge. If you look at the fact that Tories won Kensington and cities of London and Westminster at the last election to remain voting London seats, it was in large part because it wasn't clear who was the stronger challenger to the Tories. And so I, I think, you know, and I think you know, if you talk to local Tories about the Cambridgeshire result, they blame that on a kind of informal electoral pact between Labour and the Liberal Democrats for, for the reason they did badly there. But but then again, if you look at the London Assembly, where uh, the Tories, uh, the Lib Dems and the Greens are going to got together to kind of put more, to deny Labour more Assembly chair, um, committee chairs, you you see how difficult it would be putting together any kind of electoral pact, kind of pro so-called progressive alliance against the Tories. I think the other big question again is, you know, how much does this economic growth, especially if it is like the economic growth we've had in the UK in, in recent decades, you know, highly centered around the South of England, house price inflation and the like, you know, how much does that help to glue together the existing Tory coalition that these voters feel that the economy is working for them enough uh, that they are that e even if they don't like some of the values points uh, of the government, they can stick with it because the economics news is rosy enough. And Paula, seeing as everyone else has had a go, would you like to have a go? I'll just say one thing in response to James's final point there, that it's possible that works in the other direction, though, that if they think the economy is rosy, it gives them a license to vote for the Lib Dems or even for Labour um, because they think the economy is actually strong enough to do that. So I think that that could work in, in either direction. <laughs> Interesting. 
Interesting. We've got a wonderfully and typically niche question from Jill Rutter here, which I'm going to post to you. I hope someone's got the answer. Do we have data on turnout among 16 and 17 year olds in Scotland and Wales? No. Well, is that it? Not yet. Okay, well, sorry about that, Jill. Buddy, buddy, but, but, but I take it, Paul, that you, because you're doing the you're doing um, the Scottish and Welsh election studies online. I mean, it's it's not the right. I mean, uh, we we are we are we are. I mean, there's a problem about getting enough of them in any survey. Um, one of the problems we've got with the pandemic is you can't do kind of face-to-face -face random probability surveys, which are really the only kind you've got you, you can use to get a decent handle on turnout. So. It's just going to be one of those unknowns in life. Along with turnout at the referendum and other things as well, where we don't have that. Yeah, I mean, I mean the, evidence, the, the evidence of the referendum, which we're there, there's a certain amount of reasonably robust evidence that ICM collected at the time, is, is, is pretty much in line with the international evidence, which is 16 and 17 year olds are rather more likely to vote than 18 to 21 year olds, but certainly much less likely to vote than those in their 30s and 40s. We've got quite a few people asking a variant of uh, should Labour embrace PR? <laughs> well, um, of course, this we, we, we are now. Uh, I mean, that, that you know, that that discussion is going on inside the Labour Party. It's much the same discussion as went on inside the Labour Party in the late 80s and early 90s. Um, at prior to the 97 election, the party did have the plant, com plant commission, which recommended that the party should be in favour of some kind of PR, I've forgotten the details now, uh, which then got transmuted into the um, uh, Jenkins uh, commission uh, that the Labour government set up, which again recommended a, a fairly mild version of PR, um, which then got all left to gather dust on the shelf. Uh, the thing that went wrong in 20, 1997 is the Labour Party won them with a majority of 177, and so that was the end of the PR story. Um, but uh, almost undoubtedly, um, I mean, well, I mean, so there, 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 will, there will now be a debate going on inside the Labour Party about, you know, of a very similar kind to that in the late 80s and early 90s, about whether or not it should come out in favour of PR um, on the grounds that the existing, it may no longer be able to win under the existing system. Um, and certainly under the circumstances that I outlined earlier, whereby you've got a minority Labour administration being propped up by the SNP and the World Democrats, then undoubtedly electoral reform will be one of the prices. And I presume that second time around, the World Democrats in particular will prove to be rather more robust on the issue than they proved to be in 2010. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, you know, th those discussions are, I mean, the, the other crucial element in this, of course, is the trade union movement. What is the point at which the trade union movement begins to decide that hoping for an overall Labour majority is less in their interest than at least trying to increase the probability that you end up with um, anti-conservative uh, um, uh, coalitions? So um, yeah, I, you know, we're, we're in a very similar place last time, but it, it will only happen this time if Labour if, uh, doesn't get into power with an enormous majority, because at that point again, it will forget all the woes and pitfalls of the previous uh, general elections. Thanks, apologies for the phone there. Uh, in this question on PR, we can also bundle up progressive alliance, if you like, because there's a lot of talk about that in the chat box and indeed in the media. I mean, should Labour embrace PR? Is, is the notion of a progressive alliance a meaningful one? Um, if I can just add a couple of points to 
to what um, what John said. Um, this is one of those points where the changing geography of Labour's vote, I think, is is quite significant. So, I mean, firstly, as John pointed out, it, it's the most likely next Labour government is relying on the support of other parties, and most of those other parties have an interest in PR or uh, have a kind of ideological preference for it. I mean, the, the SNP, incidentally, do very well out of first past the post right now, but in theory, based on their past statements and behaviour, are in favour of PR. So it would put, put them in an interesting position if they provided the, the pivotal votes. Um, but the, the chances of PR are, are higher simply because parties that are more likely to provide the pivotal votes. But they're also higher, I think, because the geography of Labour's vote them continuing with first past the post than it used to be. If the pattern we've seen in recent elections, whereby all the groups that tend to lean Labour tend to cluster together, continues, and for example in the US we see the same thing happening with the Democrats, then that will tend to produce an equilibrium disadvantage to Labour under first past the post because they'll tend to have their votes packed together into seats where they have massive majorities, um, whereas the Conservative vote is more spread out. Um, as, as you mentioned, the, the, you know, the, as John mentioned, I think that the, the, the degree to which that argument persuades, for example, the trade unions is very important, but it does make the electoral case for PR for Labour perhaps clearer than it's been in the past. Interesting. James? I, I think that one of the problems for Labour is the SNP factor will be difficult for them. I, I totally think that John is right, but the Tories are uncoalitionable with. I mean, the, you know, and I think it's even dubious now whether they could do another deal with the DUP after what happened in the last parliament and given the direction the DUP are heading in there. But I think one of the challenges for Labour is that uh, all of these possible coalition minority government arrangements all allow the kind of bruise to be punched. You know, and I think that, you know, Labour have, Labour, I think, are vulnerable in the next election campaign to a kind of similar hit they took in 2015, which is you're prepared to, to, to rely on the votes of a party that wants to break up the UK. What, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Now, I completely take the point that Labour can argue, well, hang on a second, we're not going to offer the SNP anything, but are the SNP really going to bring down a Labour government and allow a Conservative government in? But I still think that come the next, and I think this is a, a worry of some people in Labour, is that, you know, come the next election campaign, but the Tories will be very, uh, very happy if the polls tighten, if it looks uncertain to go back on that attack of Labour and the SNP, which, which the Tories are convinced worked so well for them in 2015. Indeed, if you talk yeah. to some Tories, they're convinced that if the, if the polling, into, if the public, the media narrative in 2017 had been more aware that it was going to be a hung parliament, but they think that a kind of reprise of that strategy could have got them over the line. Yeah, trouble is, James, I don't know of any um, research evidence that supports the Tory claims about what happened in 2015. So, and I'd actually, many a Labour voter south of the border is in favour of allowing Scotland to hold a referendum. Um, but of course, I mean, this, you know, this is where Scotland could well kick in because the, what you, you know, just to add to the potential um, mishmash of, a, of the next election is that um, if indeed the SNP have been denied a referendum by any means, uh, the SNP may well fight the 2023-2024 election on the basis that if we get an overall majority of the Scottish seats at Westminster, we will regard that as a mandate to negotiate for independence, which used to be the SNP position. So then you will be faced with a situation where either you have to exceed something to the SNP 
or you have to form a grand coalition because otherwise the SNP will just be able to gum up the works. So this, this is one of the ways in which how the referendum issue is handled between now and the next general election is something in which Westminster in general actually has quite a lot of interest. I, I personally think one of the things that makes the 2023 election more likely is the whole um, the whole Scottish independence question, which is, you know, it is, I think there are some people in Westminster who hope that you could get a similar effect to 2017 when the SNP went backwards in that election in terms of, you know, they lost some seats and you could then claim kind of rival mandates saying, oh, well, you know, look at the look at the Unionist Party vote share in the general election of 2017. Look at the fact that the SNP lost and uh, SNP lost MPs. Therefore, the kind of the, the, the Holyrood election mandate has been overtaken by the Westminster general election mandate. I think I think that I do think that if you look at one of the factors pushing towards 2023, it's not just the economic growth figures. I think it is the, it is the Scotland question and the, the desire to, you know, something might turn up in 2023. Yeah. Well, don't, don't, don't rely on it too much because the reason why the SNP lost seats in 2017 is because they lost the they lost support amongst Leave voters. It was nothing to do with India F2. Um, and uh, given the level of support that there are now for independence, the SNP basically can win elections by simply mobilising the S vote north of the border. The strategic, the strategic position of the SNP has fundamentally changed. It, because that, because of that very between support for independence and voting for the SNP, so long as so long as support for independence remains at its current levels, um, uh, it's going to be very very difficult to uh, achieve anything very much in a, in a hit in a hit on the SNP, particularly in a Westminster election. Paul, I think we've arrived at this point from initially talking about PR and a, a progressive uh, coalition. Uh, just to make two points about that. First of all, um, voters don't necessarily see the parties as interchangeable. So the parties might see themselves as being able to come up with a pact, but you can't necessarily just move all the voters around, you know, as if there were pieces on a on a board game. We'll just put all those ones together and kind of like a risk game and we'll win and we'll win that. Um, but the other thing that I wanted to say in this is that the calculation for Labour might be quite immediate in terms of whether or not to support PR, but the consequences for Labour further down the line, if we move to a PR system, might also factor into that um, calculation. We talked before about the Greens, the challenge from the Greens, and the fact that a lot of those Green voters are squeezed back to Labour in the first-past-the-post system. And so it's not obvious to me that PR solves all of Labour's problems forever. It might solve some immediate ones and create longer term ones for them. Interesting. Thank you. We haven't actually mentioned the Metro mayors as yet. So it might just be worth sort of in very broad terms saying, you know, asking you to reflect on those elections and whether there are other lessons we can learn from those, both about the state of the politi of politics and the parties and about, you know, what devolution does and whether these elections have impacts for the future of devolution and how seriously these posts are taken by the electorate. Is there anyone who's got any comments on those Metro Mayor votes? Well, briefly, I mean, there were three that were politically close in 2017, West Midlands, Tees Valley in the West of England. Um, uh, they were ones that in normally you would, you would expect Labour to win given the partisan division in those areas. Um, looks as though having uh, having acquired the incumbency um 
the, in the West Midlands and the Tees Valley, the incumbents clearly were able to exploit the position and able to um, uh, thereby uh, uh, strengthen their position. The um, incumbent in the West of England, who was much less high profile, and indeed less high profile than the mayor that Bristol also has as a, as, as a city, um, um, uh, doesn't seem to have been able to do so. So, uh, you know, um, it's... Uh, you know, some indication that of how uh, those who have advocated, you know, having direct elected mayors that, you know, the personality of the individual and the success that they otherwise have in office matters. And of course, you know, the crucial role, the crucial um, role of devolved politics is that above all, what you should be doing is to be seen to be defending and promoting the interests of the area that you represent. And the ones who are good at the job are the ones who do that and, and gain visibility for doing that. And the ones who are less successful seem to be those who don't. I think one possible significance is that because the Tories won uh, West Midlands and Tees Valley, I think that will that will make the Tories less inclined to think as they traditionally have that any form of regional government in England is just going to be Labour dominated. And that can be very important down the line when you think about the broader constitutional makeup of the UK and ways in which Westminster might try and see off Scottish independence with some, I mean, I, I, think, I think the idea of simply more powers for Holyrood has, has sailed, but I think the idea of some broader constitutional refresh along the lines that kind of Gordon Brown talks about a lot, you know, but that, that, the, the, the fact that Tories have a certain confidence now that they can win in some of these places, and these aren't just going to be Labour held positions in perpetuity, could be very significant. I think there's also an interesting consequence on, on the Labour side. I, I speak, uh, I'm coming to you from the domain, of course, of the King of the North, Andy Burnham. Um, and one of the interesting consequences, John mentioned it as well, of these elections is that it, there's there's a new element to opposition politics, which of course Boris Johnson himself benefited from in the past, which is it's possible to build a big political profile uh, and achieve significant political goals while in opposition by holding one of these big executive roles. And then you start to become part of the conversation in terms of who should be the future leading figures uh, in this party. I mean, the way that Andy Burnham has behaved since the results suggests that he'd certainly like to continue to be in that conversation. And by being uh, the, you know, the, the, the directly elected mayor of a very large city region, he's in a position to, to inject himself into that conversation in a way that we didn't have many figures in opposition politics who could do that in, in English politics, at least pre-devolution. So I think it does show an interesting change in the dynamic on the Labour side too. King of the North with half an eye on London, it would seem, but uh, mm. Paula... Sorry, I don't really have anything much to add to, to what's already been said, except we also, you know, we saw this effect of, of what seems to be name recognition. Um, Bristol, in particular, hadn't had a, any really high profile clashes with government around tiers or um, COVID restrictions more generally. We've been very lucky in being a, a low incident area throughout. And so I don't know whether or not there was an, an impact there of the other Metro mayors having been able to generate their profile to some extent by fighting things that were happening at the local level that was that was a little bit different in Bristol. Brilliant, thank you. I don't know if any of you want to tackle this one. We've got a couple of questions in about what the impact of boundary changes is going to be before the next general election. <laughs> um, yes, um, I mean, 
there, there, there are all sorts of eddies on this. Um, the first um, is, that, I mean, the, the, the principal feature of it is that, um, is, is, is the reduction in the representation of Wales. Um, that's where Labour will clearly get hit. Um, that's point one. Point two to make, as James, uh, James has been talking about election in 2023, um, the government in the legislation did speed up the boundary review a bit so that it would report in by the end of June 2023, something in which the opposition members on the standing committee never seem to have spotted or take any interest in at all. It should normally have been October. But even so, that does mean that if, if, if the government wants to fight an election in 2023 on new boundaries, it can't do so, it may not be able to do so until October rather than in May, because the boundaries may not be through by then. The third point to make, however, is that the impact of the boundary review will now be somewhat less than it might have been if it had been introduced five years ago for two reasons. One is the, that the fact that the uh, electorate has been growing quite a lot in some relatively pro-Labour parts of the country, e.g. and especially London. And secondly, that in winning the Red Wall, the Conservatives have become uh, 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 somewhat more reliant on constituencies with relatively small electorates in parts of the country where the number of constituencies is going to be reduced. So, I mean, the, 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 this uh, boundary review will certainly have a beneficial impact for the Tories. Not quite sure it would have be as much impact as it would have been if the boundary view been, previous one had been introduced for the reasons I introduced. And then there's also, I think, then a fascinating question as to whether or not boundary reviews are going to have the same effect in future. Now, herein, to be honest, we're then in, into the lap of the gods of, of another phenomenon. I mean, so if it, if it had continued to be the case that the repopulation of some of our cities was, was going to carry on continuing, then actually the idea that boundary reviews were automatically going to benefit the Tories and disadvantaged Labour was beginning to look as though it might be yesterday's story. Now, of course, what we now wait to see is what is the impact of the pandemic on the repopulation of our cities and do we, and do we get an outflow of the cities, in which case the story may, may continue. But um, just be aware that the realignment to some degree has taken at least some of the force of the impact of the boundary review out, and that certainly in future, once we've got rid of the representation of Wales, um, I'm not sure that future boundary reviews will have quite the same impact as this one's going, going to have. Anyone else want to add anything on boundary changes? Paul is shaking her head, Rob or James? And of course, the other thing about it is they, 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 they dropped the, the reduction in the number of seats to 600, which, you know, that was asking Turkeys to vote for Christmas, which they never were going to do so. Um, and, 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 eventually, and eventually the government, uh, the government got there. But, yeah. James, would you like to come in on this? You don't have to, but... I think, I think John is right, but I think the impact of the boundaries changes will be... They will... They were, they, I mean, there used to be a kind of assumption that these could be worth kind of um, a double digit number of seats to the Tories. I don't think that's the case. I, I personally think that the boundary, the, the date when the boundary changes come in will not be the determining factor in whether or not the Tories go for an election in May 2023. Okay. Just 
uh, one thing for all of you watching, if you're one of those people whose question I haven't asked as yet, A, apologies, and B, we have a Ask the Expert session on Friday at this time, which will simply consist of me putting your questions to a panel, two of whom will actually be John and Paula. So come along to that and you have a far higher chance of your question being asked. Uh, sort of, I'm going to take a bit of liberty with some of the questions being asked now and phrase it in a sort of a tricky way, I think, which is, if you were Keir Starmer's chief advisor, what would you be telling him to say about Brexit, given the numbers that you know? I think my advice would be that um, it, it is not obviously to your advantage to be not criticizing the government for operational failures in Brexit. Um, because at the end of the day, um, one of the things that you want to be able to do is to break the link between leave support and voting for the Conservatives. Um, and that in part at least can be done by persuading them that the Conservatives have failed to deliver. Um, so while I can understand Labour's, I mean, you know, I think the Democrats should just be frankly promoting going back in. I can understand Labour's reluctance to do that, but I think not using opportunities at all to criticise the government when things over Brexit go wrong. Now, of course, one of the things is, that's true is that the pandemic has hidden quite a lot of, of this, and it may continue to do so for some, for some months to come. Um, but that eventually some of the day-to-day -day frictions of Brexit will become manifest. Um, and to be honest, I think the Labour Party needs to exploit them in order to try to draw a something of a, um, you know, a degree of uncertainty in the minds of Leave voters about whether or not the government's Brexit programme is delivering what the government said um, it would deliver. Who wants to be next in pretending to advise Keir Starmer on Brexit? I'm still trying to wrap my head around John's early double negative at the moment. Uh, There's no great eagerness to answer this question. It's, no, there isn't. Uh, <laughs> sort of explain uh, something. Um, I mean, I, I think uh, I would echo John's point about um, highlighting Brexit operational failures as being uh, a valuable strategy. Um, there's there's not particularly any point or gain, I think, for silence on that front. Um, the other thing I think it is worth flagging up is that in doing so, it probably is important that Labour avoids getting sucked into a debate which parts of its activist base would still be keen to have, uh, which is about um, you know, reopening the question of getting back in uh, to the EU. Um, because I, I don't, I mean, uh, perhaps 15 years from now, that might be a debate that's worth having, but it strikes me that given the needs of the Labour Party are very much more about finding a way to appeal to sort of weakly partisan leave voters rather than appealing to strongly partisan remain voters, that would be an extremely uh, bad idea uh, to get into that discussion and would very much enable hand the Conservatives a device to continue unifying 
um, leave voters and talking about Brexit by raising the threat of uh, they're going to open that whole cans of worms straight back up again. So I, I think it's important that Labour talk about the failings of Brexit as is and the ways of improving on that existing relationship, but without getting sucked too quickly into a debate that can be framed as overturning the whole thing and going back to square one. I mean, one of the interesting comments from Jonathan Isabey is, you know, should Labour engage in a quick mayor culpa for supporting a second referendum? No, no, absolutely not. Look, at the end of the day, the Labour Party is heavily dependent on the support of Remain voters. You know, whatever it would like, the Labour Party is the party of Remain voters, social liberals, graduates, young people, etc. It cannot afford to separate itself too much from that, from that, from that electorate. If I, if I can add oh, the... I think, I don't know how I would advise Keir Starmer to do this, but I think the, the problem is that they need to find a line which attacks the government's handling of leave. So it says the handling of leave is wrong without coming across as saying to leave voters, you were wrong. And that's the line that needs to be to be trodden is to be criticising the handling of leave without coming across as saying we, should have, we shouldn't have done this at all. And it's a very, but, very difficult... But, but, but you can do that and at the same time hope that along the way you actually undermine the confidence of Leave voters in leaving and thereby begin to shift the numbers of the balance of support for Remain and Leave in your direction. So you might want to think of it as a way of trying to prize open the Brexit debate in a way that if it works, actually begins to work more broadly in your direction. I, it's, trying to, okay. it's trying to find the point of weakness in your opponent's stance because it because you know the, the other thing at the end of the day and it comes back to Labour's timidity I mean if, if Boris Johnson should have taught anybody anybody in the last two years is the merits of being brave and radical because that's he's been that that's the reason why he's got where he was he was willing to pull the bull by the horns and to run with it and to take the potential collateral damage and against that, the opposition has to stop feeling too timid. Uh, and that, but as I've already suggested, that is true across the board. It has to be true of the domestic agenda as what it's, what it's willing to do about Brexit. James? I, I, mean, I think there are two challenges uh, for Labour on Brexit. One is the point that John made, which is, you know, we didn't see those scenes of, but uh, because of the pandemic, because uh, of stockpiling, like you didn't see chaos. So that thing that I think lots of people were expecting. And I mean, the second issue is, and we can debate the precise technicalities of this, but I think to a lot of people who uh, sit in the kind of, on the Brexit point, the first act of the post-Brexit British state is to kind of opt out of the EU vaccine procurement programme. And then that appears to work, that appears to do go better than, than, than the European one. Now, you can make an argument that, oh, at the end of the day, the, the difference in timing is not going to be that precise in terms of when restrictions can be eased. But I think the point is that for a lot of voters, that was a sense of, oh, OK, I can see either for Leave voters, it was confirmation of what they had done, or it made it very difficult for Labour to, to reopen that because it was like, oh, so you wish we'd, we'd gone into the EU vaccine procurement programme. We'd be behind. We'd have fewer people vaccinated. I think that that is very difficult. I think that, that mere fact that the, the, the first big act of the post-Brexit British state has succeeded, has, I think, cemented in Leave's advantage in the, in the public argument. And that's, that's the really yeah, interesting... No, that, that, that's absolutely right. But, the, uh, but, the, but the, the, the other area, by the way, for potential leverage for Labour is that 
when we come to the various aspects of regulatory dealignment that the government has in mind, you discover A, that quite a lot of these things are not necessarily terribly popular and B, they're not actually divided on remain leave line. So there are lots of leave voters who, when you start asking them about specific possible areas of regulatory dealignment go, no, this is not a terribly good idea. So, I mean, you know, for example, I look forward to uh, what happens to the debate about GM food in which the government is willing to get involved. Um, that's potentially a whole almighty hornet's nest that uh, they're potentially uh, going to stir up and they will not find that leave voters are automatically in favor of allowing uh, the introduction of um, the growing of GM crops or the imp import of GM food. And you know, the same applies to hormone treated beef and chlorinated chicken. But isn't one of the dangers for labor here that, I mean, in a sense, going back to what you said about the Today programme, John, that it's all well and good saying, the Tories are doing this wrong, they've handled Brexit badly. They're, they're vulnerable then to the question, so what would you do instead then, which opens up the whole freedom of movement? Is it- No, 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 you provide, you provide an answer to that operational question. You've, you're, you, you're right, but you can still narrow the scope of your initial attempt on this to say, well, actually we think what the government should have negotiated in the Brexit agreement is X, all right? Okay, you can you can you can still instill the doubt. You can still come up with an alternative without saying uh, we are necessarily wanting to fight the war about whether or not there should have been a withdrawal agreement in the first place. Um, if if I could just raise one complicating factor on that front. Oh, if you must, I, I, I agree with John on this. But the, the problem for Labour is is not necessarily the, the, um, sort of finding something to say about Brexit uh, when put on the radio. It's it's ensuring that everybody says the same thing about <laughs> Brexit when put on the radio. One of the big problems they had all the way through 2017 to 2019 was the you know manifold ways in which Brexit divided the Labour Party internally, which overlapped with the manifold ways in which the Labour Party divided over the leadership of Jeremy Corbyn. And an awful lot of that division is still there, kind of latent in the Labour Party um, coalition. And, and the risk, as soon as you open the discussion to what next on Brexit, is you're going to have a lot of Labour people arguing with each other uh, about what next on Brexit and thereby distracting attention away from the efforts of the Labour Party to criticise the Conservatives on what next on Brexit. And for example, free movement, you mentioned it there. I don't, there's, there's a segment of the much more liberal idealistic wing of the Labour Party activist base that would very much like to get back into that discussion. And there's another section that's equally emphatically desires to avoid getting back into that discussion and wanting to sort of stick to the current post-Brexit rules. So there's a big risk there for Labour that it ends up arguing with itself again, which was really, really not good news for it in the previous parliament. James, I'm going to give you the last word. I mean, do you detect any signs at all in government of a nervousness about having their feet held to the fire over Brexit by the Labour Party, or are they immensely relaxed about this? I think that when Brexit is the dominant subject of political debate, I think the government feel pretty confident. I mean, they think that, you know, I think it's very, it was very telling, actually, that when Boris Johnson went to Hartlepool straight after that election victory, he wanted to emphasise, uh, as per John's point, the dividends of Brexit. He wanted to go and say, look, yeah. you've already seen... now." Again, we can get into a discussion about, you know, how, you know, 
what, what whether Brexit was the reason the government could do this or that. But I think it was telling his desire to emphasise that it was Brexit that allowed the government to do the vaccination rollout programme to stop the European Super League, all of these things. And I think that what you're going to see is them trying to to have it to tally up a whole series of things and, and kind of challenge Labour and say, right, what 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 are those uh, things don't you like? Which of those things would you not have done? I mean, that, that's what's difficult for Keir Starmer. I think the other problem for Keir Starmer is, is is this, is that he has a kind of, I think, I think politicians, they, they're always most comfortable when they're arguing most passionately for what they believe in. But I think he feels that he can't, he finds it difficult to re-enter the Brexit debate because of precisely the reasons Rob's saying, you know, how, how if you knock that scab off in the Labour Party, there are going to be a whole series of arguments that, that, that start running. And, and as soon as, you know, any Labour politician with a front bench portfolio starts musing about free movement, mm. the Tories will, will go to town. Yeah. I also, in that regard, note with interest the number of times seizing the opportunities of Brexit figured in the Queen's speech as well. They're not shy about linking it to all sorts of policy mm. initiatives. I think you'll find that in every place that gets a free port, for example, the argument will be made, you've only got this thing that, that you know, they say will bring jobs and investment here because we've left the EU. Yeah. Now, again, we can all argue about the, the precise details. But as long as the argument is on that, on those topics, I mean, the Tories will feel comfortable and confident. We have, I'm afraid, run out of time. We've slightly overrun, for which apologies to the panellists and the audience. But let me end firstly by thanking James, Paula, Rob and John. That was utterly fascinating. We could have gone on for ages more. And secondly, just to remind you uh, about two things. One, to fill in the survey if you can. But secondly, at the same time tomorrow, we have an event on... Uh, national Identities and British Politics with John Denham, Elsa Henderson, Mike Kenny, uh, I think Sunder Catwella, and to be chaired by Paula. So do please tune into that as well. And again on Friday for the Ask the Experts. But for the moment, thank you all for watching. Thank you so much to you for, for participating, for taking the time to speak. Uh, I thought that was really, really interesting. And thank you very much for your time and enjoy the rest of your day. All the best to all of you. Thank you.